church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Good God, the world is in need of that which is truly good. Fill us with your spirit to resist the seductions of religion as empire, that we as a community of faith may more fully embody good news today. Amen. And please be seated. Today marks the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost. The 23rd Sunday. That's a lot of Sundays, isn't it? It's a lot of Sundays after Pentecost. If you're newish to Pearl or new to the church calendar, you may be wondering, when, when does this end? <laughs> like, when is this Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Pentecost finally over? Well, the answer is in just a couple weeks. Ordinary time, the last half of the church calendar is approximately six months long. And then the high church calendar, which begins in Advent and concludes on Trinity Sunday, arrives in just two weeks on the first Sunday of Advent. And so the first half of the year, we're marking time Sunday by Sunday as we're intentional to think about and to remember and to recall and to tell the stories about Jesus' life. And then the last half of the church calendar, we're marking time as a community of faith who intends to try and embody this story that we spent six months focusing ourselves upon. All that to say, this morning is the last time we'll hear the words, today is the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost. Next Sunday is Christ the King Sunday, the final Sunday in the church calendar year. We'll celebrate the last 12 months, think about how we've grown and changed and transformed, and then again, finally, the first Sunday of Advent. We won't say this blank Sunday after Pentecost until June 11th, 2023. Who knows what June 11th, 2023 will be like? Who knows the ways that we're going to grow and change and transform the things that we're going to think and the ways in which we might become different over the next several months? We just have no idea. But what we do know is that the Spirit of God hovers over chaos, all kinds of chaos with the hope of possibility for every life. And all of this makes me want to spend some time this morning asking why. Why church? I mean, church has been used by Christians to colonize and to dominate other human beings for millennia. And it makes me wonder why. Why Jesus? I mean, Jesus has been used by Christians to strike fear in the hearts of humans for millennia. With language like believe or else, conform or perish. 
But is this good? Like, can we say that church is good? Can we say that Jesus is good? For if not, we probably shouldn't go to church or mark time by a historical figure who's been used to cause so much harm. Perhaps this is why that old poet William Blake once wrote, Remove away that blackening church. Remove away that marriage hearse. Remove away that man of blood. You'll quite remove the ancient curse. It's an interesting poem, isn't it? Remove away that blackening church. Remove away that marriage hearse. Remove away that man of blood. You'll quite remove the ancient curse. Oh my goodness, written all the way back in the late 1700s, early 1800s, almost 200 years ago, over 200 years ago, and yet here we are on the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost in the year 2022, and many human beings look at Christianity and wonder along with Blake, when will that curse stop? When will it cease to exist? And it's possible that you've had a similar thought. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand, but it's quite possible if you call Pearl home that you found yourself wondering about the goodness of Christian faith, at least Christian faith in America. Like, is Christianity good? Is Jesus good? Is this thing called the gospel good? Because for many, Jesus and Jesus' good news has at times felt a little bit like a curse, especially for those who are not white or male, or straight. And so on this eve of the end of another church calendar year, I'd like to take some time to consider the goodness of Jesus' good news. For you see, from the very beginning, the Jesus story was supposed to be a light on a hill, not a blackening church. From the very beginning, the Jesus story was supposed to nurture a community of human beings who esteem and uphold relational covenants, not a marriage hearse. And from the very beginning, this Jesus story was supposed to undo ancient curses. It was never intended to expand and to extend our human sense of being cursed by God. And so with all of this in mind, this morning I'd like to provide a historical context for Jesus' good news. I've offered some of this context before. We talk about it a lot in our Reconstruction class on Christian faith, but I don't think it can be shared or talked about enough. For as we'll see, it's this historical context that makes Jesus' gospel truly good. And I think worth considering, and perhaps even a meaningful way for some people to mark out time in their lives as they seek to follow in the ways of Jesus. And so to understand Jesus' good news, we need to go on a brief literary and historical journey. So please stay with me. It won't be too long. And then we'll uh, try to bring it all together here at the end. The first Roman Caesar was Julius. Julius was said to have divine origins. Because of this, he was sometimes called the divine Julius. The divine Julius. And so when Julius' son Augustus came after Julius, it's of no surprise that he was considered to have some divinity in his blood. And this is also why he was sometimes referred to as the son of God. Isn't that interesting? So you see, Caesar was the son of God in Roman culture, in Roman times. Now, if you grew up in the church, this may be astonishing, 
to think, oh my goodness, Jesus was not the very first son of God? No, he wasn't. And it's very important to understanding the Jesus story. And there's more. Caesars were often referred to as saviors. Saviors. An ancient inscription about Caesar Augustus, the one who was reigning right around the time of Jesus, reads as follows. Whereas the providence, God, whereas God has guided our whole existence and which has shown such care and liberality, has brought our life to the peak of perfection in giving to us Augustus Caesar, whom God filled with virtue for the welfare of mankind, and who, being sent to us and to our descendants as a savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And so you see Caesar, the son of God, who uh, was a savior who brought about peace on earth. Now, again, if you grew up in the church, this may be astonishing. Jesus was not the first savior who was said to bring about peace on earth. And this, too, is really important to understanding the Jesus story. And if all of this is not interesting enough, here's where things get real interesting. The phrase, peace through victory, was a Roman phrase that described how the Caesars, the sons of God, saved the world. It took place like this. The greatest military to ever exist would go out and crush everyone who was not loyal to Rome. And then it would often crucify anyone remaining who would not subjugate themselves to Roman rule. And after new territory had been procured through massive violence, an announcement would be sent throughout the empire. And the announcement was called Good News. In the Greek, euagelion. Side note, this is the same Greek word that's used for gospel and good news in the Bible. This good news declared the extension of peace in the world by way of massive violence. Now, I know this is a lot of obscure information. <laughs> so if you briefly fell asleep, uh, here's a summary. Caesar, the son of God, was a savior who brought about peace on earth through violence. And a primary Roman symbol that marked that peace by way of violence was a cross. That, you could say, was Rome's gospel. That was Rome's good news. Caesar, the son of God, is a savior who brings about peace on earth through a cross. It sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Especially if you grew up in the church. And as I've now said twice, I'll say it one last time. If you grew up in the church, this may be astonishing. Jesus was not the first son of God. Jesus was not the first savior. Jesus was not the first who was said to bring about peace on earth through a cross. That message was an already existing tried and true sentiment throughout the land into which Jesus was born. And this, this is so important to understanding the Jesus story. Here's what I mean. Beginning with the oldest of all the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark, we read these words in chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news, Greek euagelion, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how Mark chapter 1 begins. So what do we have here with this statement, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Well, let me begin by stating what we don't have. 
we do not have a brand new idea that's being birthed into the world. The good news, the gospel of Caesar Augustus, the son of God, already existed. And that, you see, is the whole point. This is where the primary meaning in the Jesus story comes from. But to be clear, it's not by telling the same old story. It's not by Jesus rivaling the Caesar story with more power and more might. A bigger army building bigger walls. Which would sound something like this. Surrender, submit, to use common medieval modern day Christian vernacular, believe or else. I mean, that kind of messaging would just be the same old gospel of Rome. Instead, the gospel of Jesus is an undoing. It's a historically, culturally subversive message against the Roman gospel. And so imagine with me, we must try and imagine this together because this is where all of the meaning deeply comes from. Caesar, the son of God, the savior, stands again and again in his palace and sometimes in his temple and sometimes on the steps in front of all of the people of Rome to declare his most recent gospel, good news, shortly after conquering another kingdom. Euagelion, euagelion, good news, peace on earth. There's usually a cross representing the massive violence that was used to bestow upon earth that peace. With this very important context in mind, we now turn to this morning's New Testament reading from Luke chapter 4. In Luke 4, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. So the Son of God goes into a synagogue, stands, takes a scroll, unrolls it, and reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news. You, Agalion, gospel. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring gospel. And what is this gospel? Peace through massive violence? No, listen to these words. Jesus continues reading. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives to recover sight for the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. You see, this moment was not lost on his listeners. They knew exactly what he was doing. Then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. According to Jesus, this is his gospel. And so let's just begin by noticing what's missing from the gospel that that was expected in Rome. Notice nothing here about blood. Nothing. Notice nothing here about a place called heaven or a place called hell. Notice nothing here about who can belong or who can get married or who can lead. Notice nothing here about humans being inherently depraved or separated from the divine. There's none of that. In fact, if we were to pause here to think about messages of violence, like messages of fear, messages of death, or messages about not belonging, or messages about separation from divine goodness, then we would, with the context that we now have, we would say that messaging like that is simply the age-old gospel of Rome. 
Nothing new here. Nothing new. And if we continue to pause and consider messages about bloody sacrifices to appease a raging God, or messages of fear about eternity in a place called hell, or messages about the inability to fully belong as a marginalized person, or messages about separation from the divine, then we would, with the context that we now have, say, well, that good news is nothing new. That good news has already been told. Empire by empire by empire, often religion by religion by religion, at least the religions that continued to win and become dominant within society. Rather, we might even be among the first to cry out when we hear language like that, hey, that's, that's nothing new. That is, that is as old as Rome itself, which Jesus clearly intended to subvert with his declaration of gospel in Luke chapter 4. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And so perhaps we Jesus followers should pause to ask, Who is poor? Who is poor today? Like, like who is poor in spirit? Who is poor in means? Who is poor in culture? Who is poor in society? And once we identify those who are poor, generation after generation, more after more, we Jesus followers would be compelled towards self-giving on behalf of those who are poor. And then Jesus said, God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. And so perhaps we Jesus followers should pause to regularly ask, who is captive? Like very literally, who is incarcerated? And does incarceration actually lead to human flourishing? Does it actually help people rehabilitate and become better humans? Because if not, then something needs to change. And who is emotionally or relationally or politically captive? Once we figure those people out, the people who are captive, we Jesus followers would be compelled to work toward their restoration and freedom. And then Jesus said, God has sent me to bring recovery of sight to the blind. And so perhaps we Jesus followers should pause to regularly ask, who has health that's in need of better health? Like who, due to their health, struggles to flourish in this world? And once we identify those whose health increases the struggle to thrive, then then we Jesus followers would be compelled to transform systems like political systems and educational systems and occupational systems and health care systems that ensure care for every person. And then Jesus said, God has sent me to let the oppressed go free. And so perhaps we Jesus followers should pause to regularly ask, who is oppressed? Like because of their race or because of their gender or because of their sexuality or because of where they were born or because of their socioeconomic situation, who among us today is oppressed. And once we identify those who are oppressed, we, Jesus' followers, would be compelled. Compelled, if we truly believe in gospel, we would be compelled to alleviate burdens. And finally, Jesus said, I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor refers to jubilee as it's described in Leviticus chapter 25. Put simply, jubilee declared... Jubilee declared, every person is in and under the favor of God. That's what Jubilee declared. 
In other words, other gospels, other kings, other kingdoms often say, the favor of the Lord is upon you if, and then fill in the blank. And if not, the message quickly becomes, or else. But according to this good gospel and this intentionally subversive son of God who saves, Jesus' gospel is the unrestrained declaration of divine favor on every person, whoever they are. And it doesn't matter how much we've progressed as a human species, that declaration of good news is still desperately needed today. As I understand it, with the literary and historical context that we now have, any gospel that declares anything else, anything other, any gospel that adds to burdens, any message that amplifies fear, any sermon that increases alienation, any church that magnifies ifs, ands, and buts in order to fully and wholly belong, that is not, it truly is not the revolutionary gospel, and it is not good for human flourishing. For truly, Jesus, the Son of God, is a Savior who declares subversive news that is good, not just for the people in power, but especially for those without any power at all. Not for those who conform, but for those who stand outside of what conforming is even supposed to look like. The favor of God upon everyone. Of course, the subversiveness of Jesus' gospel hits crescendo. When Jesus, rather than wielding power and might, is crushed by power and might. And when Jesus is crushed by power and might and hung on a cross, he is transforming a Roman gospel that is violent into symbols of divine self-giving and solidarity with every person who lives under the boot of empire. I began this sermon by reading a poem from Blake about Christianity. Remove away that blackening church. Remove away that marriage hearse. Remove away that man of blood. You'll quite remove the ancient curse. My sincere hope as we near the end of this church year and begin a new year is for this community to more fully embody the ancient, subversive, and truly provocative gospel of Jesus. Perhaps it sounds something like an age-old poem that reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon us because the divine love of God has captured us to bring good news to the poor, to release those who are captives, to work toward the recovery of all who are sick, to free every person who is oppressed, and to proclaim the Lord's favor on every person until not one child of God is deemed unfavorable. That's revolution. After Jesus declared these words to those in the synagogue, the text tells us something extraordinary. It says, all spoke well of Jesus and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. I wonder how the world perceives the church. The church, all of America is amazed at the gracious words that come from the church's mouth. Amen. Perhaps that's the fruit of a truly good gospel. Perhaps that's the bar by which we should live our lives as religious people. It's a gospel that's considered to be gracious, 
not by those who are already within the community, but by those especially outside the community. It's a gospel that mediates peace through ongoing acts of loving kindness toward every person, especially the least among us. This is the work that God is doing. This is the way in which Jesus' story must stir us. And year after year after year, as we more fully embody this good news, we become a community of ever-deepening goodness. May it be so. And let us pray. Good God, the world is in need of that which is truly good. A gospel that is truly gracious. Fill us with your spirit to resist the seductions of religion as empire, that we may more fully embody your good news today. that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.